Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Uh, this week I'm going to play the second uh, O'Toole debate uh, clip. This is uh, picks up right where we left off in the last podcast. This one will be the, the Q&A. Q&A went along on for quite a long time. The audio kind of is good and bad and good and bad. Uh, it's the nature of where people were standing and, and, and how the room, you know, interacted with the, uh, the mic that I had set up. So apologize for that. Actually, I'll just go on this like side tangent here for all of you longtime listeners. Um, if you've been with us since the beginning, you know that the audio quality has, has changed over time and, and hopefully has been on somewhat of an upward trajectory. As of late, I've had just enormous problems, and I can't tell you how much time I've spent trying to figure out what the heck is wrong with our audio. I, I did one of those uh, system updates to Windows. I think I went to Windows 10, and all of a sudden, uh, a whole bunch of things that had worked before just stopped working. I think I fixed it. I think I've actually found it. So if you've noticed the audio being kind of a mess and there's Windows 10 in the background, yay. Um, being kind of uh, a, a little bit prickly the last few episodes, my apologies. I think we got it fixed now. And uh, hopefully in the future here we'll be a little back to, back to a little bit higher quality. So here is the uh, Q&A from the debate I had with Randall O'Toole in Lafayette, Louisiana. Take care, everybody. You are listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. If you're just joining us on the radio, we are at the Light Center this evening uh, for a presentation talking about the plan for Lafayette, basically. Um, and we have invited folks down here. Yes, there is still time to come. We will wrap up the radio portion, if you will, by 7 o'clock tonight. Um, Chuck Marone is an engineer, a planner, and the president of the nonprofit organization Strong Towns, Randall O'Toole, a Cato Institute senior fellow working on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. Both of these gentlemen have made some great points this evening. Um, and I think it's hopefully opening some minds, some hearts, so we can kind of think about some of these issues. Um, if you would like to ask a question, I want you to feel free to do that. You don't have to be nervous. You don't have to be intimidated or anything like that. Now, what I would ask you to do, um, since there's only one of me and, and lots of you guys, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stand over here, and if you would like to ask your question, that would be like extremely helpful so I don't have to run up and down the stairs, if you don't mind. I think we already have a question right here in the front row, please. And Rob will hand you the microphone. Please remember that um, for the most part, you need to ask your question and hand it back to Rob, um, just so we can get as many questions answered as possible. Thanks. Uh, I'd like to ask this question to the both of you. And uh, Chuck, you first. Okay. Uh, the same the same politicians that are bringing us the plan are the same ones that brought us the Costco pack program and the hospital for parents. Yeah. Can you comment on that? Is that consistent with uh, your vision of, uh, of, of financial responsibility for the plan? Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I, will, I will comment on that. Um, in terms of the last half of your question, generally, no, it, it's not. But I, I want to say this. Um, Final Fayette marks a shift, and I think it's an important shift between a city that has no plan. Do you have not a plan? Uh, what I would call like business as usual, the old boys club. We all know how things get done in the city, right? You, you, you know somebody, you know somebody, you go scratch someone's back. You, th that's the way things have always been done, right? And I think there's a certain momentum to that. Uh, I don't know if that's manifested as Costco development or not. Um, but the way you start to deal with those things is by saying, look, we need some transparency here. Uh, we need the real numbers. We need data. We need to know what's actually going on. And we need to chart a different a, a course based on uh, those kind of things, not essentially the, the gut reaction. I'm pro-subsidy, I'm anti-subsidy. Uh, who, you know, what process can I use to get that done? So in general, a strong town's approach is not an approach that needs subsidies. It's a more incremental approach, not one where you're trying to do wholesale changes. But I think that the, the, the projects here that you're doing are a byproduct of the shift, and the answer is not less, you know, get rid of the plan, it's actually start implementing your plan. Because the plan is going to open up a lot more opportunities besides what I think is a desperation need to subsidize bad development. Okay, do you have a follow-up for that very quickly? Yes, just one second, please. Please get close to the microphone. Thank you. It isn't the form in man. The Adam Smith is always said, right? The form is man. And that and that the the uh, you still don't have politicians that are going to want to be favored. That's not going to change. Right. No, I, I totally agree. And I think you know, if you're going to have a system of government with roads and sewer and water and lift stations and development and business and you you know, you're you're going to have the fallibility of man. I would like to have that in my mayor and city council that I can, you know, run against and go meet than in my politician in Washington, DC. I don't think that has anything to say on whether we should plan collectively for our future or not. Okay, well, I have a question down here first. I'm sorry. Oh, Mr. O'Toole? Yeah, please. Sir. I would just make the same point as the question there, Dr. And that is that just because you have a plan doesn't mean things are any more transparent, that you eliminate the good old boys club or anything like that. When I go to a, a Walmart or a Costco, if it doesn't have the grocery item that I want, I'll go to a Whole Foods or a Trader Joe's or whatever store will have the whole grocery item I want. I don't need a government plan telling grocers what to stock on their shelves. They will respond to the market. They'll respond to me. But when you have government planning, it just creates opportunities for more good old boy clubs, for more crony capitalism, rather than more transparency. And I agree with that in essence, but I think in, in the real world at a city level, if you're going to have tax subsidies, for example, which you've collectively decided you are going to have tax subsidies, and if you haven't, the state has mandated a process whereby it can happen regardless of what your elected officials think, uh, how are you going to decide where those go? How are you going to decide who gets that? How are you going to decide where that type of building should take place? I, you know, to me, I, I get the market principles behind it, but now you're drawing this other part in it, and you, you've got to have an approach. Right. We'll go to our next question here. Go ahead, uh, Yeah, for 
Uh, oh, sorry. For the benefit of folks who don't know, uh, my name is Kevin Blanchard. I'm the public works director here at the City Parish Government. Um, I just want to kind of set this up by saying uh, we recently finished an evaluation of the Condition 1 and Condition 2 roads in the unincorporated part of the parish. Condition 1 means this road is likely to revert to gravel if we don't do anything soon. Condition 2 is on its way to Condition 1 road. Uh, to bring those Condition 1 and Condition 2 roads uh, up to a standard, it will cost us $40 million. Uh, now, in the current year's budget, I have $300,000 to the overlay in the incorporated parish. And so I am curious, uh, under both of the approaches, uh, and to hear from both of you, if I can, um, until self-driving cars come, how should we approach that problem? I would say you have the wrong system of paying for your roads. You're paying for your roads out of whatever state gas taxes the state will share with you. Gas taxes are a user fee if they're spent on roads. They're not a user fee if they're spent on transit. And then you have property taxes and other taxes. That's the wrong way of paying for roads. You should pay for roads using a mileage-based user fee system, which is now technically feasible. That's going to take a few years to implement. In the short run, you should look at roads and, and, and put the money where it's needed the most. And instead of subsidizing cost codes, instead of subsidizing buildings like this one, which receives huge subsidies to be built, and I don't think it's generating any value to, to uh, aside from tonight's meeting, of course, to pay for it. Instead of doing all these subsidies, you should put the money where the essential needs are, which are schools, roads, and uh, policing, and not in all these other frills. You should put your money into meat and potatoes before you put your money into dessert. And, and I, would, I would agree wholeheartedly that we don't finance roads in the right way. Um, I wrote a whole book about this and suggested some other ways in which we should go about connecting supply and demand. The, the implications of that, though, here at, at, in Lafayette are two. First of all, we don't need to decide how we tax. The state's decided it for us. And maybe we need to have representatives go down to the Capitol and say, let us experiment and change our tax system. That would be incredible. I would love that. But with the system that we have, the, the, the implications of actually charging people for what they use are that in those red areas I showed you on the map, out on the edge, you're paying a lot, lot more. Your uh, feedback that you're going to get in a market-based system is that this is really, really expensive. I welcome that feedback. I think that that feedback is a necessary uh, component of a good development pattern. Uh, but right now, you're not getting that feedback. What you're getting, the feedback is, wow, Kevin's got a $40 million bill and only $300,000 to pay for it. That's not working. I'm mad at Kevin, I'm mad at the city. I don't want my taxes to go up. I would like better feedback. But with the system that we have, uh, you're not gonna get that anytime soon. Okay, go ahead. Yes, under the present Louisiana tax property tax structure, we pay about 1% of the value in raw land on land, whether it's anything or not. Then we pay 1.5% on the value of the improvements on the land. If you have a building on a $100,000 piece of land, you pay 1%. If you have a $1.5 million building, you pay 1.5%. So the result is, the improvements on the land pay a 50% higher property tax than 
agricultural land, you pay basically nothing. Oscar gives an example where said fifteen million dollars worth of property was paying three hundred dollars a year in property My question to you is, to you guys is, with that economic force in place, is it possible to develop a plan that can overcome that huge burden? I'll start first. Um, I, I think you know the answer to your question is: Is it possible? Yes. Um, is it really hard? Yes. I mean, I, I I tend to be sympathetic to the Georgists who uh, prefer land taxation. Uh, I I think it's wrong to punish people when they improve their property. I actually think improving your property should be a benefit for everybody. You're creating wealth in the community, and you know. So I would I would I would more value a land tax than a property tax if I had to weigh the two. Um, that being said, what I'm suggesting, and, I, and what Plan Lafayette starts you on the path towards, is a conversation about how you do that. How do we create, you know, given this blunt instrument we have, which is really what the property tax system you described is, given this blunt instrument, how do we send the, the market, how do we let market signals get through to people when they're buying and selling property so that they know, hey, long term, I live on the end of a thousand foot cul-de-sac with three other people, I'm gonna have a big expense here at some point. That's not really factored into our system today. And, and there are ways to do it, but they're not as clean as if we could change some of those tax rates. Well, I live on the end of a two-thirds of a mile cul-de-sac with about a couple dozen other families. And we just, uh, our roads were declining, and so we assessed ourselves $1,700 per family and repaid the road. Uh, some people didn't like it, but uh, we all did it, and now we have a nice road, uh, and it, the system works. The, the thing is, we made a decision when we decided to live out in what is essentially a rural area. I live in a community of 380 people, and they're very low density, so it's really rural. We made a decision that we were going to be willing to pay those extra costs. Uh, we pay extra when somebody ships something to us, or at least a shipper pays extra because it costs more to ship to a rural area than a city. There's all kinds of ways in which we pay extra costs. We're willing to pay those extra costs. I don't want the city or the government, the state, social engineering me into trying to live in a way that's cheaper for them, not better for me. And that's what you get when you follow this path of saying, okay, this is the existing tax system, let's design our city around the tax system. That's stupid. Design the city around what people in the city want today, and if people change their minds tomorrow, let them change their minds tomorrow, and don't make long-term plans that foreclose the ability of people to change their minds. And if the tax system isn't working, change the tax system. Don't try to change people's lifestyles. And I have a respectful follow-up question to you. Because this is some of the things that, that we deal with all the time. One of the, the trade-offs that you've made, and one of the policy decisions that you've made as a community, which is very similar to everybody else, is uh, we want to have police protection, fire protection, uh, and, and those emergency response services in, in all these places. So if I choose to live, I grew up on a farm way outside of town. We knew that if you called the ambulance, they weren't going to get there for a half hour, right? If the barn caught on fire, no fire truck was going to put that up. And now today, we've got a paved road out there. Right? And it's got to be paid to city standards, so it's got to be really wide so that two fire trucks can pass and all this stuff. That's a policy decision 
that you've made. You said, we have a responsibility of public health, safety, welfare, and so we've got to build some new standards so we can get emergency vehicles out there. What, what's the give and take with, with that? You, you, I guess I'm asking, you know, do you acknowledge that at the end of the day, we would have essentially a, a if we're going to have like a private road, a private cul-de-sac that we maintain to our own standards, then this public has to be able to accept essentially a lower standard of emergency response. I don't necessarily accept that. Uh, with good transportation systems in cities and suburban areas, you can have rapid emergency response, provided you don't have governments trying to make your roads slower and streets slower, but if uh, you have a good adequate transportation system, you can have fast emergency response. But that's only part of the issue. The issue really is, should the government have a say in how you live based on its tax structure, or should you decide how you live and the government try to respond to that? And the way I think it should respond to that is take a look at your property tax bill. Try to break out where every single dollar in that bill is going. I bet only a small fraction of it is going to fire and police. I bet large chunks of it are going for things that you don't want, that you don't benefit from, and you may never even see, except for once in a while you come down to a place like this. All right, thank you, gentlemen. We're going to just lay here in the middle, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, I'm a real estate agent, so I do look at both sides of the issue all the time. Deal with people who want to live in urban environment as well as rural, so we have to cater to different kinds of buyers. I'm really glad Kevin is here tonight because I have a quick question for him. What was spent within the last 40 years in improving, air quotes, downtown Lafayette? <laughs> I, know, I know fortunes have been poured into the streets, the lights, the signage, building improvements to attract consumers, to attract entertainment, to attract drinkers to attract eaters. Okay, Kevin is coming right now. I think you'll probably you'll meet Kevin real quick. Rob, you have Kevin, you don't even have to come all the way down there. Thank you. And just a quick response, please. Uh, I think historically over the last four years, the money that we've spent in downtown Lafayette fails to comparison to what we spent in the rest of the city just because downtown Lafayette is such a smaller area. Uh, we've had the Junction Street uh, streetscape project, uh, which was, I think, about a total when they're all said and done. 15 to 20 million dollars, um, and I don't know if there are a lot of people who debate whether or not that had a positive impact on development downtown. Uh, with that perspective, uh, 15 to 20 million dollars would get us uh, a few more miles of affordable roads in there, and we've done a lot of that work over the last few years. Your question, really, like it needs to be done. Yeah, thank you very much. And um, we're going to hear from them, and ma'am, thank you very much for your question. Appreciate that. When you have more questions, I think the thing that's going to be easiest now is if we come down here, I'm going to take this gentleman's um, question after we get a response on the last issue, then the gentleman behind him, and if you'll come in line up here, we'll try to get you as quickly as possible so everybody can get the questions in. Um, gentlemen, would you like to respond to what Kevin had to say? Anybody want to add anything? I don't have Okay, very good. Thank you very much. Sir, if you'll speak closely here. Yeah, it's been a cool answer. Thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed the debate. Um, my question is to uh, Mr. O'Toole. Uh, you're central to some of your argument was the value, the sort of unquestioned value of home ownership and the, the benefits that it has. 
Uh, it really seems like the only thing that homeowner gets up to do is their hands are recording for the presentation. I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, but I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, how much of that is really derived or can be explained by other variables like race or, or income or education rather than homeownership. Um, for example, you stated that, uh, you know, homeownership can really increase the, uh, the, the value that a child gets in education. It can increase some sort of score, which suggests some sort of causal relationship there. But I just looked up, according to the U.S. Census, um, Louisiana has roughly 65% homeownership, and the states with the most homeownership are New York and California. Uh, so, you know, that seems to go against what you're saying, but the, the question is, I'd love for you to comment on uh, whether or not the only problem we have in education in Louisiana is just the rate of homeownership rates. Well, I only said that homeownership had two benefits. One is that it aided small business formation, and that's been proven all around the world. And the other is that it did aid in, in school children's outcomes. And it's been calculated, it's been carefully looked at by a lot of researchers who have uh, adjusted for the education of the parents, the income of the parents, the race of the parents, all the factors you mentioned, and found that after you adjust for that, there's still a huge benefit uh, in families that uh, uh, own their own homes for the educational outcomes of the children. And in fact, it would be cheaper, they calculated, to increase homeownership rates than it would be and get better, you get more outcomes for it than it would be to spend more money on schools by uh, raising, you know, increasing the number of teachers or raising teacher pay or whatever. So there are unquestionable benefits to homeownership. Uh, now, not everybody should own their home, not everybody needs to own a home, but everybody who wants to should be able to own a home. When you consider that 110 years ago, working class families were more likely to own their own homes than middle class families because they had felt like there were benefits to them to owning their own homes, and there wasn't an income threshold in those days that there is today. And the reason why there's an income threshold today is because government has imposed all these costs on us, especially in the coastal states, Oregon, Washington, California, Hawaii, Florida, Massachusetts, uh, other coastal states, which is where the, the bubble was. There was no bubble in the central states. Uh, and now we see, what I see in Plan Lafayette is, oh, we're going to impose the same cost on home ownership. We're going to create the same volatility in home prices and create the same bubbles that California and Oregon and Washington did uh, in the past few decades. Can I just briefly connect home ownership and business startups? Um, Dunkin' Donuts is not in Minnesota. Recently, coming to Minnesota, opening 50 stores. I looked at their uh, requirements for a new business. If you want to start a Dunkin' Donuts, you have to have $500,000 net worth and $250,000 of liquid capital, right? What could be simpler than starting a donut shop? Think about your downtown. You get a little storefront, you've got plenty of space that you can put downtown. We we'll start a little store, we'll pull ourselves up out of the bootstraps and make donuts, right? Uh, all I need is a deep fryer and a counter and a register, pretty low capital operation. I pour my sweat equity into it. I mortgage my house to get the, pull the equity out to start this business, and then Dunkin' Donuts opens up on a new interchange that you know you built out on the edge of town, and my business is like that. When we look at the relationship between home ownership and business startups, there is a really strong correlation in the system I described earlier, where you had the, the business and the house in the same place and it could grow incrementally over time. What's happened today is that 
Business startups require one of two things. Either one, you gotta be rich up front, or two, you have to be able to mortgage everything you have to make it go of it. That's not the American dream that I want. And I think Plan Lafayette, by emphasizing opportunities in the downtown, more flexibility uh, in your codes and your ordinances, paved the way for a lot more business startup opportunities than our current model does. Okay, then we'll go to the gentleman's question next, and then I also have a question about quality of life issues. All right, sorry, please speak closely. Great. Um, yes, uh, for Mr. O'Toole, you showed an image of River Ranch, and I don't know if you know the history of River Ranch here in Lafayette, but it's essentially been the most successful large-scale development in Lafayette's history. Um, and one of the interesting things is that it was also known as Waiver Ranch, because it was essentially illegal to build under our existing codes when it was built. So they had over 130 waivers to the existing laws. Now you've represented that Plan Lafayette says is mandating where people live as if we're living in Oregon. Okay, well, we're not Oregon, and actually, after the plan got adopted, uh, the, the Unified Development Code was adopted, and it actually did two things contrary to what you've uh, been talking about. First of all, it solidified the right of developers to build single-family conventional subdivisions out on the, the, the outskirts of town. So the government's not telling people you can't do that at all, it's continued to authorize that. What it did is it gave people for the first time in our community the freedom to go ahead and develop projects like River Ranch that are higher in density that were previously illegal. So I want, I want to, you know, so if, are you opposed to getting more freedom to developers to match what people want in our community? Or are you going to tell us from Portland what we need to do here? I, I don't live in Portland, so don't say I'm from Portland. I used to live there. I hope I never have to go back. Um, <laughs> Portland, to me, is where Lafayette is headed. Portland had a plan like Plan Lafayette in 1979. It seemed mild. It seemed benign. Then in 1989, they made it a little stricter. In 1999, a little stricter. It's been getting stricter and stricter all the time. Today, there are lots of places in Portland where if your house burns down, you're not allowed to rebuild it. You're required to build an apartment because they decided that your neighborhood would be better as multifamily than as single family. Nobody thought that, that was going to be where they were going to end up in 1979, and yes, that's where Portland is today. I don't think Plan Lafayette needs to exist. I don't think zoning needs to exist. Get rid of zoning, get rid of planning, Get rid of all of it, let people build whatever they want. They want to build density, fine. They want to build low density, fine. We don't need all of this government interference telling people what they can and can't do. To me, the freest place in America is Houston, where they have no zoning. They have some very limited codes, like setbacks and height limits and so on, but they don't say, once you meet this code, you have to be in a single family home or a multi family home or a uh, a, a business or whatever. You can do whatever you want as long as you meet these very minimum uh, codes. That to me is ideal. And Houston never had a housing bubble. Of course, uh, Lafayette didn't really have a housing bubble either, although it might in the next one. But the thing about Houston is it's been growing faster than any city in America. 120,000 people a year, and just even with that growth, in, that's not for the city, that's for the urban area. Even with that growth, uh, they were able to meet housing needs and housing demand without any bubble, without any huge increase in housing prices. 
There's some multifamily housing because some people want to live in multifamily housing. There's a lot of single family housing because a lot of people want to live in single family housing. That to me is a, is a future that Lafayette should be headed towards, not Portland, which is where Plan Lafayette is headed. It, interesting, at the end of the day, um, I, used to, I, I, I used to do zoning administration for a few years, uh, filling with some cities, and I, I, I tend to agree that we would be better off without 90% of our zoning codes, right? The problem is, uh, when we start to do that, what happens? All of you freak out. Right, we come in and say, you know what? Your neighbor can convert their single family home into a duplex. You go, oh, I don't want any of those in my neighborhood. And, and so it's this constant struggle back and forth. Plan Lafayette, and you included uh, some of the diagrams in your, in your presentation, uh, you know, with the opacity, the, the opacity of the glass and the, the awnings and stuff. In the downtown, uh, there is a, a conscious shift away from the very, very restrictive use codes where we go in and we say, you can do this on this property, but on the property next door, you can't do this. And, and here's the like, five things you can do here. Here's eight. The shift is away from that. And it's saying, instead of that, we know you're not going to let, you're not going to get rid of all zoning here in Lafayette. So what we're going to do is say, all right, in a place like the downtown, we're going to provide a lot of flexibility and we're going to say, the thing we're going to regulate is how you interact with your neighbors. Because really, at the end of the day, what do we care about? We don't care what you're doing in your building. We don't care if you're a plumber or an accountant or a restaurant or a, a, a person you know, living in a residence. What we care about is essentially the conflicts you create with your neighbors. And when you've got 40 acres, I grew up on an 80-acre farm, what the heck do we need zoning for? We didn't have neighbors, right? But when you live with a shared common wall and a street and a person right across the street 30 feet from you, you, you need some basic guidelines to, to make sure that everybody's acting in a way that is going to be a good neighbor. That's what the Uniform Development Code does. It makes a, radical, you know, a, a very important shift from overly restrictive use-based codes to far more flexible, I would call neighboring codes. There's a better solution, and that's the Houston solution. In Houston, most people don't have zoning, but they do have homeowner associations and protected covenants or deed restrictions. And you have a choice. If you move to the Houston area, you can move to a neighborhood that has really strict deed restrictions where you can only paint your house certain colors. And if you have an RV, it has to be in the garage. It can't be out in front. You can't leave a rusty pickup truck on your front lawn. Or you can move into a neighborhood that has really loose homeowner restrictions where you can have a rusty pickup on your front lawn. You can paint your house pink, but maybe you can't have a grocery store out of your house. Or you can move into a neighborhood that has no restrictions at all and no homeowner association. And if you move into a neighborhood that has no homeowner association, but you want one, all you have to do is petition your neighbors, and if 75% of them agree, you can create a homeowner association, and then if 75% agree, you can get it together, can write your own restrictions that apply to your neighborhood. And at any time, your homeowner association can change the restrictions if 75% of the people agree. So it's a very flexible system. If, uh, if uh, you live in a neighborhood that's kind of declining and some developer says, we want to change your neighborhood, but you've got a homeowner association, all they have to do is come in and negotiate with your homeowner association and see what does it take to get you to let us change your neighborhood. And that happens a lot too. You don't have to go to the city. The developer doesn't have to go to the city and fight with you over whether the city is going to let them change your neighborhood in ways that you don't want. You get to decide, you and your neighbors are in control, and if you don't want to have any controls at all, 
about half the, the neighborhoods in the city of Houston itself have no homeowner association at all. So we've got a lot of flexibility. Real briefly, just because I'm going to get yelled at by some friends that are watching the webcam uh, from Houston, uh, who, who will you know want me to jump down your throat and say they have some of the most restrictive codes. They they don't have Euclidean zoning. They do have really restrictive codes through their street standards and through their other development building codes. I had a friend that did development uh, in Houston, and his job was basically to get permits. And he'd say it would take six months, nine months, 12 months, uh, really onerous permitting process. So Houston's kind of held up sometimes like a libertarian utopia. It's close enough. Go there. Check it out. Okay, very good. We're going to go to Joyce. Then after Joyce, we'll have this gentleman's question. I do want to let y'all know that if in the event I kind of interrupt you at any point, that's only because we're going to have to rejoin uh, News Talk 96.5 cable for our legal ID and rejoin at the top of the hour with the network. But if you are willing to stay here, we will continue to have this open discussion, continue the conversation, and you'll still be able to get it uh, at cable96.com. Joyce? Okay, well, um, I almost forgot what I was going to say, standing up here. But one of the things that I communicate with a lot of people through uh, the uh, organization goes through. And I hear the citizens talk about what they want, and they want better roads. They are tired of driving. I've got a road in my house that I can't even take on anymore. They want police and fire protection. It's called priorities. And the city administration, and the you know, state and federal, need to focus on what their priorities should be. And that's where our tax dollars need to go. I, I think they're, uh, you know, we're exhausted with the uh, programs that uh, take our tax dollars away for some other programs. Like uh, Mr. Wagner said, well, four or five million miles came a few uh, miles of road. I heard somebody in the administration say a million dollars, that's chunk change. Well, maybe it is for them, but it's not for taxpayers. So I'd like to know how we can get government, local government, to focus on the priorities that they're supposed to focus on and then move forward on this other Thank you. It's called the electoral process. You yeah. elect yeah. leaders who reflect your opinion rather than uh, somebody else. Now, the problem is that they very quickly can get captured by the good old boy system that Mr. Marone mentioned. But uh, you have to re-elect new leaders all the time, maybe get some term limits so they can only be in office one or two terms. Uh, it's, it's not easy, but that's the problem. With anything, that's a problem, especially with government. That's one reason why I don't think government should be doing a lot of the things it's doing. Should be deauthorized from doing those things because it just promotes crony capitalism, it promotes good old boy systems, and to me, plans like Plan Lafayette simply create even more avenues for that, not less. Stop getting responses. Not really. I mean, I, I think if we. You know, if we can magically transform ourselves back to that 1905, uh, you know, style of government where the federal government was not involved in local economic development, local land use, local transportation, it was, if, if we could magically transform back to that, I would say, you know, we don't need a plan. We've got a framework that's been in place for thousands of years. It'll look just great. Right now, though, we've, we, we don't live in that world. We live in a different world, one that comes with a lot of maintenance, comes with a lot of strings, comes with a huge amount of incentives for us to do really damaging things to our community. And I think, you know, to me, the response to that is not to put our heads in the sand, 
but to work collectively to figure out an approach that works for us. And that is the definition of autonomy. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I would like to ask y'all, what tax methods do other cities use in order to uh, implement things or to change things or in the direction of the uh, community? Uh, and that question, I'd like to make a couple of statements. Lafayette is a donor parish. We give a lot of our tax money on roads to other parishes. I think I should know that. Uh, also, our tax structure here in Lafayette is not inducive to taking care of the roads or the drainage that's necessary for the parish of Lafayette. I live in the southern part of the parish, and believe me, I know where drainage is and the lack of it is. And uh, we do have the money to invest this thing, but money has been used wrongly in the past uh, years uh, with this administration that we have present. One other thing is on the tax question. Uh, the city of Lafayette, utility department, uh, gives a lot of their budget, a lot of their profit over to the general budget. And I'd like to know, uh, with this money coming in, how you gentlemen would, uh, would uh, uh, set up a system in order to pay for our needs here in Lafayette. Okay, I think you're more, this is your more available. As far as roads go, I already mentioned the mileage-based user fee system. Now we've been paying for roads with gas taxes. My home state of Oregon was the first state to impose a gas tax in 1919. And by 1930, every other state had a gas tax and dedicated 100% of those taxes to roads. And that's paid for virtually all that and federal gas taxes to pay for virtually all state highways in the country. But it hasn't paid for local roads because the states haven't shared enough of the gas taxes with local governments. Instead, we're seeing more and more gas taxes being diverted to other uses. Texas sends 25% of their gas taxes to schools. Uh, the federal government and collectively the state governments together spend about 20% of gas taxes on mass transit. So we're using the gas tax to subsidize other things. If we would stop doing that, we would have some more money. In the long run, though, gas taxes aren't going to cut it. Even with the increase in population, and even if driving uh, continues to increase per capita, which is it's leveled off as of 2007, but it starts to increase again per capita, even with that, cars are getting so much more fuel efficient so fast, the gas tax revenues are going to continue to decline, even as the cost of maintaining the highway system uh, stay the same or increase. So we need to come up with a better system, and I like the mileage-based user fee system. We can use it. We can use a system that protects people's privacy, but make sure that the roads you pay for are the ones that you drive on, and to make sure that the roads that you drive on are the ones that you pay for, which is the way a market system ought to work. And if there, if you have a, at the end of a cul-de-sac and you and your neighbors aren't willing to pay for it, then maybe it's going to get changed to a gravel road, and that's the way it is. But if you want it paid, then you pay for it. I don't see anything wrong with that, and I would like to change that system as quickly as possible. Oregon is going to transition to that system uh, over the next couple of few years. We don't know how long it's going to take. I was one of the first few people to volunteer to be a part of it, and uh, hopefully within a decade or so, everybody in Oregon will be doing that, and within a decade after that, other states will have followed. Tony, if you give me just one second, just for as we're wrapping up with the radio portion. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I want to thank all of the listeners for joining us 
Um, you, of course, continue to hear the stream when you can at kbone965.com. As Chuck Moreau continues to answer uh, that particular question, Randall O'Toole, both of them continuing to answer questions here at the Light Center. I want to thank everyone for joining us. And of course, Ken is back in the studio. We'll be bringing things back up to the network this evening, and we'll pause just briefly for that as he makes that transition. Oh, yeah. Do you have a question? Oh, can I, can I just say one? Yes, I was going to say, I, I really <laughs> respect the fact that, because you've been on spoken for our mind shots for a long time, and, you know, given the opportunity, you, you know, you, you, you did what you said you would do. You, you signed up for the program, and I, I, I really respect that. There's an interesting debate in libertarian circles uh, regarding the mileage tax and privacy. You touched on it briefly, <laughs> but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that more because one of the things that we see with the mileage tax, and I, by the way, I fully agree with you. The closer we can get to direct feedback where people actually pay for what they use, the closer we can get to actually giving people market signals for what they use, the, the more their use is going to be congruent with reality. How do you respond to people who say, I don't want the government tracking everywhere that I drive? Well, the way the system works is when I drive on the private road that I live on, if I drive a mile on that private road, it ticks that I've driven a mile on that road. But it didn't say when or exactly what part of that road I used. If I drive on a state highway a mile, it ticks that I drove a mile on a state highway, but it, and it sends that money to the state, but it doesn't say which state highway I drove on or when I drove it on. So it's, it's like a cash register, it's just ticking the number of miles I drive and who's the owner of the road that I'm driving on. And by the way, uh, I volunteered for this, even knowing I'm going to pay more because right now, with the state gas tax being 30 cents a gallon and my car gets about 30 miles a gallon, I'm paying a, a penny a mile, but with the mileage-based user fee system, it's a penny and a half a mile. So I'm paying more, but I'm doing it to find out how well it works and, and show that it can be done in a way that will preserve people's privacy. Sir? Yes, I've got several things. Uh, I was here when Bridge, uh, where many rivers was first uh, proposed, that was back in the early 60s, and it took all the money being pumped into River Ranch to get that done. Now, I'm happy that that bridge is there, but it's like uh, the outer loop. Uh, Frank Lee and I co-chair of the Transportation Committee last year, uh, Visions last year, and we proposed an outer loop that was on Elwhop Resort Road. They're now putting a line, an arbitrary line somewhere else near Elwhop Resort, but not that roadway. It's going to cost innumerable dollars more. I've got several issues Okay, well, let's do, let's tackle one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We all have separate. The costs of engineering, et cetera, versus brick and mortar costs. I've, I've been assured that bricks and mortar costs are a fraction of all the other costs. In you, you might be too far in the weeds for us on, on this one. Well, I don't think so. No? no okay. One of the things I said, and I didn't have time to go into it, was you, if government can't afford to pay for your roads, maybe you need to look at your cost structure. Because 
Government spends a lot of money it doesn't need to spend. And let me just tell you a story. Back in the 1960s, Henry J. Kaiser, who's one of my heroes, who helped build uh, dams and ships and planes and cars and all kinds of things in the West, uh, he moved to Hawaii and he was building a housing development uh, outside of uh, Honolulu. And the only road to his housing development was a narrow winding road and the state of Hawaii issued a request for proposals to do a $20 million study that would take a year long to see whether it would be worth building a four-lane road out to Henry Kaiser's new development. Well, Henry Kaiser went to the governor and said, I'll build you that road for $20 million for less than the cost of the study, and I'll get it done with it before the study would be done. And the governor said, we'll have to bid it out. So, we, so Henry Kaiser bid $19.9 million, got the contract, and got it built. So government, even in the 1960s, was already making things more costly and more time-consuming than, than it is today. Uh, I don't know road costs as well as I know rail costs, but in 1981, San Diego built a light rail line that cost $5 million a mile, adjusting for inflation, that's about $8 to $9 million a mile today. Today, the average light rail being built today costs $200 million a mile. And all of that increase is because of government planning, regulation, and restriction. So if we examine our cost structure and say, how can we do this in a way that actually costs less? Maybe just privatize it. Let a private party build it. Let a private party collect the mileage-based user fee. And if people aren't willing to pay for it, the private party won't be willing to build it. Engineers love building bridges. Engineers love building bridges. And if you look at this country, we have this massive problem of bridges. I mean, in Minnesota, we have one fall down, right? Uh, 13 people died. Um, engineers love to build bridges. They, they, are we still on there, right? No, we're restraining. So. Oh, we are. So I should still walk. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, to be on the I mean, I'm, I'm not going to curse or anything. But I was going to say, <laughs> bridges are sexy projects, right? They're fun. They're you know interesting from an engineering perspective. You get to work on really cool stuff. You get to design beams and and uh, you know all abutments and all this stuff. It's really great. We have built so many bridges in just bizarre places. Um, I want you to think back to the way people built bridges before the Interstate Highway Act, before we made all these investments, before we started this whole experiment in, in building you know this horizontal America. When we built a bridge, that was a massive investment. A massive investment because before the bridge was built, how were you getting across the river? There was a you know a, a, a ferry that would bring you across. It was real slow. You see a lot of cities of mine in that age that grew up to the river, but then nothing really was on the other side. I mean, very little. Once the bridge was built, what happened? There was a huge incentive because it was our money locally to make great use of that bridge, to make great use of all that infrastructure along there. You would see in that age. The, the most intense style of development happening right around that huge public investment. Because we collectively made that. This is my Mayflower Compact Conservatism, right? We, we made that investment together and we were going to say, we, we're going we're to make really good use of it. Now we, we build bridges, you know, and, and our bridge money is running out. But if you look back in the decades, we threw bridge money around like it was handy, right? I mean, bridge here, bridge there, bridge there. And we don't have anywhere near the money to take care of now because we never had the incentive to make really good use of it. But that's not exactly true. 
we have about 600,000 highway bridges in this country, and 20 years ago, 120,000 of them were considered structurally deficient, which means they needed a lot more maintenance to keep them up because they were so old and decrepit. Today, only about 60,000 bridges are structurally deficient. We've reduced the number of bridges that are structurally deficient by 50%, even though we have more bridges today than we did 20 years ago. So uh, we're actually doing pretty good on the bridge front. But Europe, I think, has got some good ideas on when it comes to bridges and highways. Uh, in France, there was a valley called the Miu Valley. And they had a narrow, windy road going down into the valley and then across the valley and then up the other side. And the government said, we need a bridge across this valley, but it's going to be real expensive. So I said, okay, any private party who wants to build a bridge is free to do it, and then they can toll the bridge, and they get to keep the toll for 40 years. After 40 years is up, the bridge is ours. The bridge belongs to the government. But for the first 40 years, they get to keep the toll. A company came in, and they built a bridge. It's a mile and a half long. It's taller than the Eiffel Tower. It's a... a not a, it's a cable stay bridge, not a, quite a suspension bridge. It looks like a suspension bridge. It's a cable stay bridge, and it's got like six towers. And it's an extremely beautiful and impressive bridge, especially in this old, old valley. And it saves people hours and hours just to go across once. And so people pay for it, and uh, the, the tolls that are being collected are paying for it. That's how most new highways are being built in Europe. Europe is building a lot more highways and bridges than the United States is, and they're paying for it out of tolls, and it's a system that works. We ought to have that kind of a system here, and instead we're putting our money into light rail and commuter rail and intercity rail. We're talking about spending hundreds of millions of dollars to have a rail project from New Orleans to Baton Rouge and have one train a day. Uh, you know, it's ridiculous especially because we don't have any money to keep those things maintained, even though we are doing a good job of maintaining our highways and bridges. I, I love the idea of tolling every new bridge. I have one other statement, and that is not long ago, we passed one cent sales tax to the airport, and I believe it dies next month. Good. But we also have an election, and I'm almost willing to bet there's going to be a renewal on the ballot. But in any event, having said that, I asked the, plan, the person on the planning commission uh, why they didn't six lane a road that's now 100% occupancy <coughs> when they built it about four years ago through open property. They weren't, they built a four lane divided highway. They said, well, y'all didn't pass the one cent sales tax. And I asked, well, was it dedicated to that road? And they said, no, we've got to be able to move the money around. That's the problem. Most people don't have to say so, so they don't trust the government. <laughs> if, if, if we had advertising to the, everything that was going on in the planning and had a say so in <clears throat> well advertised meetings like this, yeah. I, think we, I think all three of us could agree. I, I wrote about today on the blog a poll that was just released by a, a Mineta Foundation or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it said 71% of people support, in America, Americans, support a 10 cent gas increase when you ask them for maintaining highways. When you say for maintaining an expansion, it drops from 71% to 31%. Uh, so, you know, you say, like, I wouldn't support. You know, is the money dedicated for this road for that? 
We have this runaway problem right now in that our system is designed to build, 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 build more, and we're not able to go back and maintain things the way we should. And so, you know, I think you see reflected in, in the broad public sentiment that, okay, if it's going to cost us more to fix things, we can have that conversation. But if you're just going to keep building more stuff the way you've been without, you know, kind of recklessly, uh, we're not for that. And I, I, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I could have a conversation about the one. I would want to get it, like Randall suggests, as close to the source as you can so you get good, you know, market feedback. But I'm, I'm, I'm we have a no new roads campaign that's gone down. I don't think we should build any new roads in this country right now. We have no way to pay for it. I won't go that far. I will agree that the system we have today, and it's not a, because of the tax system, it's because we have we put transportation in the political sphere. The system we have today, the political system, promotes capital improvements and not maintenance. There's one transportation. U.S. Department of Transportation uh, policy analyst said, uh, politicians support uh, uh, ribbons, not brooms. They like things where they can cut ribbons and take credit for glitzy new projects, but they don't want to do the brooming. They don't want to do the maintenance, the cleanup work, the keeping things up. Uh, you don't see that in the private sector. You look at our private freight railroads, they are generally pretty well maintained. If you look at our state highways that are funded by gas taxes without the interference of politicians, they are pretty well maintained. When the politicians get involved and say, okay, we're going to spend this money over here, we're going to spend this money over here, we're going to take these user fees from these users and spend it on these people over here because they're more deserving, uh, that's when things start to, to end up being poorly maintained and you start having serious problems. So get the politicians out of it, either by privatizing or by creating. In Texas, they have county toll road authorities. They Each county can have one. They can collect tolls, and the tolls can only be spent on roads. They can only use the money to build roads. And it's a system that works very well uh, when they're using it. Well, I like what you're showing yourself you said this sort of tool, because at the same time that we were the politicians, Nobody objects to government spending money, except for the some extreme group, the always extreme group. What amazes me is that at the same time we are subsidizing the Costco supposed development under the same people, at the same week, we passed this unified development code. Now that's the problem. No one speaks out against spending money anywhere. All spending is, seems to be good. Politicians supported, and nobody, nobody spoke up at one public meeting to say, Do you see the irony? We're going to subsidize Costco in the country and this, this thing. At the same time, we're going to pass the Unified Development Code, which, by the way, put a spotlight on that intersection and said, We will not do any more big box developments there. The irony of it is that we passed both of them the same week. So expecting politicians and a plan, that was our plan. That's what we got. Nobody in the administration, nobody at DDA, nobody got up in public and spoke out against us. That's the problem with the plan. Anyone? Yeah. Okay, next. Jason. 
as, as I listen to this very story-driven verbal debate, I'm trying to uh, reconcile the views as much as possible and understand what the fundamental points of disagreement are. It seems, it seems to me that the, the, the fundamental point of disagreement, as I listen to the two of you, is, is about how, how communities ought to go about making decisions. Uh, you know, with Mr. Marone, I hear a strong endorsement of, of a comprehensive plan, uh, recognizing that we're a conservative community needs to uh, plan, plan for its future in a way that is, that is consistent with uh, the existing revenue base. Uh, and, and, I, and I guess I would, I would ask you all, first of all, would you agree that that is uh, the, the fundamental uh, uh, this disagreement uh, between the two of you? Is it really a fundamental disagreement about, about how, how a community makes decisions uh, for, for what it wants? Secondly, I, I, would, I would ask Mr. O'Toole in particular to be, to be a little bit more, maybe elaborate a little bit more on, on what you think the right decision-making mechanism is. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you a few examples. So you, 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 you've given great examples of, of how neighborhoods can come together to determine you know, the, the level of uh, zoning regulation that, that they want. But, but how do you go about uh, determining if uh, you want to do airport? How do you go about uh, determining uh, how to get people from from the neighborhood to uh, to to the city center? Uh, at the end of the day, it seems to me that somebody has to make uh, a decision about where the road actually goes. Now, you described an, an innovative, efficient means for you know determining you know, how it's paid for, allowing allowing individual drivers to basically you know sort of run up their tab you know, as, as as their needs merit. But, but, but how, do, how do you go about making those, those bigger decisions about you know, what actually gets built, where it goes? Because uh, it seems to me that there needs to be some way of resolving that, uh, that, that just an individual you know, actor cannot do on, on his or her own. Well, first of all, on the area, is, is that the source of our fundamental disagreement? I, mean, well, I, I think you accurately described it. I mean, I, I think. Him and I sit at the federal and state level, and we probably agree on, on most things uh, in terms of the interaction. When we get to the local level, yeah, like I, I describe myself as a Mayflower Compact kind of conservative, that some of these decisions where you should sit around the table and figure it out. Um, you know, I think that maybe is the source of where we're most estranged is when we get down to the, the localist level. I don't, yeah, I don't think the city is the appropriate venue for a lot of these decisions. But as far as the airport goes, or something like that, airports earn revenue. When a plane lands, the, the, the airline pays a, pass, a, a fee per passenger to the airport, and that just works into your ticket, generally about $10 every time you land at an airport. Even if you're just changing planes, you pay a $10 fee to that airport. And the airport lives off of those revenues it shouldn't have to live off of 1% sales tax or any kind of sales tax or property tax. It should be able to live off of just those revenues, and most of the big airports do. Uh, and, and the idea that you need to have the sales tax for small airports to keep air planes coming, to me that's often overstated. You need a new airport, the question is, can you generate more revenue to cover that? Denver faced that question a few years ago. The mayor of Denver said, our airport is too small, we need a new bigger airport. 
the planners in the city actually said, our airport is paying for itself. We have two major airlines using it as a hub. If we build a new airport, it's going to cost so much that we're going to have to raise the fees, and one of those airlines is going to pull out, and we're never going to be able to pay for it. And the, the mayor ignored the planners, and that's exactly what happened. They built the airport. It cost a lot of money. It's miles away from town. It's harder to get to. And uh, one of the airlines pulled out as a hub, and now they're not getting the revenues they counted on. So you need to make these decisions as business decisions, not as political decisions. If you drive out to the airport, you're going to drive on a highway named after the mayor who led to that fiasco. And he was rewarded for that fiasco by being named Secretary of Transportation of the United States. Right. I, I, have a, I, have a, I have a quick interjection, though, and I, I want to I want to ask this because you, you, you kind of got on my case a little earlier about uh, planning for the city's revenue stream. Like, I think your quote was, I'm not worried about the city's budget. I'm worried about people's budget. And I don't think we should make policy decisions based on, you know, the revenue of the city. And you cited Kilo, and I think is a good example of a city gone awry, uh, trying to, you know, condemn individuals' property for some big development scheme. But, you know, you also just said that the city should operate with business principles, like business decisions, which is fundamentally what I agree with. I mean, I think the city should look and say, where's our revenues, where's our expenses? Are, are you saying two different things, or am I misunderstanding you? I'm not saying two different things, because I'm saying that most of these things can be funded out of user fees. Sewer, water, roads, airports, those can all be funded out of user fees, and all too often they're not. So if you're funding them out of tax dollars, you're not making business decisions on right. how to spend that money. You're making political decisions. But, but, but in order to make that business decision, you would have to do a calculation of revenue and expenses. You'd have to sit down and figure out, okay, we're going to put this pipe in, here's the amount of revenue we need to get back to justify that decision. That, that's uh, essentially what Lafayette has done. Well, let me give you an example. In Texas, I mentioned the state has allowed counties to create toll road authorities. The toll road authorities build roads, they spend money on the roads, they collect the tolls, they pay back the bonds, for the, for the roads out of the tolls. It's a simple system. You get revenues and costs. But some counties weren't happy with that. So the state allowed other counties to create what they call regional mobility authorities. The regional mobility authorities can use property taxes, sales taxes, federal grants, tolls, any kind of money they can come up with to build roads. They're building giant urban monuments, 12-lane highways, uh, they probably only need four lanes because they're coming up with all kinds of sources of money to pay for it. So they're build, putting their money in the wrong places and they're not making responsible decisions, they're making political decisions. Totally agree. And I, I so, see those things all the time. In, in the absence of the state changing the, the, the rules of incorporation so that we can charge those user fees and have that direct feedback, in the absence of that, what is the best approach for the city to take? I mean, I, I, in a sense, I feel like we're doing what you're suggesting uh, to the best of our abilities with the, with the tools that we're allowed to use. I, I think, you know, the city government, if we could charge, you know, a, a per foot tax, that would be great. I think people would be very open to that. But without that, 
Isn't the revenue models of looking at costs and expenses and trying as best to correlate them with demand, isn't that kind of the, I mean, the best we can do with what we have? Well, the city of Lafayette spent something like $1.3 million or more writing the comprehensive plan. They spent millions more writing their unified development code. Maybe they should have spent that money going down to Baton Rouge and saying, we need some better financial tools to pay for our roads because our roads are falling apart and we, we can't afford to pay for them out of uh, property taxes. Maybe they should have gone down and said, we need to uh, find cheaper ways of building roads. Can you streamline the, the, the process of doing it? If, if uh, I've been reliably told by a city engineer that if they build a road with their own money, they have to spend 5% of that money on administrative overhead. But if they get state or federal money to build the road, they have to spend 25% of that money on administrative overhead to make sure they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's uh, for the state and federal government. So maybe we need to streamline the process for uh, all levels of government so they can do what makes sense and uh, look at the, both their revenues and their costs. So it, it would make sense for the next budget that we budget for some lobbyists <laughs> to go to the state capitol. And get government out of the way. Okay. All right, we have one final question that we're going to ask for each of you to please give us kind of a wrap up. And, um, and we'll get to that in just a second, sir. Uh, Chuck, um, if we build roads that are not cost effective, the long term. Uh, my question is, why do we have done that? Why do it? Why don't we just, it's not cost effective, don't do it. So that the reason is, is politics. The reason is, is because the, the politician is going to make a decision that's going to uh, give him the glory today at the expense of people in the future. And that's the part that never changes. I don't care whether you have a plan or you don't have a plan. If, if what, what I think Mr. O'Toole was saying is we'll be that, that person that on that link the road, he is willing to pay for that to live in a less And if you if 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 the politicians the problem that we have today is because we made bad decisions, uh, a plan is not gonna change those bad decisions, it's gonna be a vehicle that's going to create more crony capitalism, more waivers uh, that uh, uh, insiders will be able to, to uh, take advantage of. Does that, does that make sense? Um, I'm sorry, but um, let me let me try to address it. I, I think I see where you're going, and, and I'll try respectfully to uh, address your point. Um, I, I think when we're talking about local roads, it's very clear why governments do this, right? The local road is paid for by the developer, the costs are rolled into the mortgage, all the government does is assume the long-term obligation. I'm a politician today, that obligation doesn't come due for a generation, I just get the money today, this is a very good deal for me, right? As a community, this is a very good deal for us. If you're growing, uh, you've got cash, you're successful, right? So this is all good. And you see businesses that make this decision too. The only problem is, is when businesses reach the end of that life cycle and they, they, they can't sustain themselves, they go out of business. And that's the market feedback. What governments do is they try to get more growth, right? We get more growth, we'll have more cash, we can take care of all those old liabilities and you keep adding to the negatives on your balance sheet. Which by the way, in gasping rules don't show up on your balance sheet as liabilities, they show up as assets, just completely reverse. When you look at the state and federal uh, approach, 
you, you have a lot of the same incentives at play. The state will come in and say, we'll help you build this interchange. You guys have a big, you know, highway project that's now being invested. How many of you would not, you know, we, no, we don't want that project. We, no, it's like there's a, there's a certain level of support for those types of projects. Again, you get the benefit today, the liability is someone else in another generation. I think unless we can, you know, do what Mr. O'Toole says and, you know, go to the state capitol, get some lobbyists, get the rules changed, uh, you know, get our own flexibility here, we've got to kind of live with the system we've got. And that means we've got to figure, figure this stuff out because we have some huge financial problems. One of my hopes and one of my, uh, you know, and, and, and one of the things that I hope transpires as a result of Plan Lafayette, as opposed as a, as, a, as a result of this process, as a result of the work that Joe and I have done, have done, is that we can start to ask a more sophisticated set of questions. Should we take over that dead-end cul-de-sac four miles out of town? Should we uh, be repaving this road when it goes bad? Should we take that $300,000 of Kevin's budget compared to the $40 million of expenses, and how do we allocate that? I'm hoping we can have a more sophisticated set of answers for that than we've had in the past, which has just been build, 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 because building new is good. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts? On the question or the closing? The question or the closing, whichever one. <clears throat> there was a, an economist, uh, I think his name is Nassim Talib. Nassim Talib. Yeah, Nassim Talib. He came swan. up with a, an idea called the Black Swan. And, uh, Basically, the black swan is, a, an, is an event that's so unpredictable and so earth-shattering that it's going to change everything and it uh, can't be predicted at all. The idea of the black swan is that nobody thought any swans were black until they went to Australia and they found some swans that were black and they were totally surprised there were actually black swans in the world. But uh, there are black swans out there. I think Mr. Marone is asking some very good questions, and he's just coming up with the wrong way of answering the questions. Planning is not the right way because there are too many black swans. I emphasize self-driving cars because that's a black swan that's going to make obsolete almost every single urban plan written in the United States. Just as uh, the Model T Fords in the early 20th century made all the plans and all the uh, cities obsolete at that time. Uh, Self-driving cars are going to make our idea of what a city is today look totally obsolete 20, 30, 40 years from now. That's just one black swan. There's a whole lot of them out there. And the idea that city planners can come sit down and write a rational plan that will then uh, be transparent to everybody and avoid the go avoid network and be flexible and respond to uh, changing needs, that never happens. Once you've written a plan, it becomes fixed because special interest groups that benefit from it, even if it harms everybody else, make sure that that plan stays in place. So uh, I think we need to figure out solutions to these problems of paying for roads, of paying for infrastructure, of uh, paying for airports, of transportation, of housing, and so on. But those solutions aren't going to be found in a comprehensive plan, which is actually going to create more problems than it solves. Yeah, by way of a closing statement, I'm so glad you brought up Nassim Taleb because I, 
we have constructed an entire organization around the notion of a black swan and the idea that we cannot really predict the future the way that we like to think we can. If you go to strongtowns.org, you click on our mission, you're going to see our principles. We believe in incremental investment. We believe in small, uh, small scale development. We believe in growing slowly and incrementally over time so that those market principles can give you good feedback. We don't believe in build it and it will come transit. We don't believe in build it and it will come highways. We don't believe in government gambling with your money. We believe in sound, prudent fiscal management based on small iterative cycles and good market feedback. That's the way you run a local government. Are we doing that here in Lafayette today? No, we're not. Does Plan Lafayette bring us to there? No, it doesn't. But I tell you what, the conversation in this community in that direction is far more mature than in any other city in the country. You are leaders in having a conversation of how do we set up a local system of governance that actually responds uh, to not just operate by sound business principles, but actually is transparent, is reflective, provides opportunity for people. I know you all live here and you get frustrations with the government, frustrations with how things are going, and, and but I'm telling you, your local conversation is, is, is good, is getting better. This debate is one example of that. And I just encourage you to continue down this path because I think you're not going to be in Portland, you're not going to be San Francisco, you're not going to be New York, you're going to be Lafayette, and your uh, local values need to shine through in your planning efforts. So thank you so much for inviting me and, and being part of this. As we're closing here this evening, um, so this is slot truth time for you. Okay, ready? This will be fun. Woo! Okay, who actually in this room listens to KPEL? Okay, so a lot of us. And if you don't, I invite you to do it because there are conversations like this that go on every day. But without people to call in and continue those conversations, we can't get more of the issues out there. And I think people have one perception of what KPEL is, but that morning show is not anything like that. The morning show from 5.30 to 9, for the most part, is just supposed to be about people who listen. So if you have issues, you can call on our phone, leave a voicemail message, because there's only one and we all share. Um, you can send us an email, rob at kpel965.com, bernie at kpel965.com. The biggest thing you can do whether you agree or disagree with the topic, is get into the conversation by calling when these people come on the show. And I don't care what candidate it is, I don't care what, uh, if it's a Democrat or Republican, an independent person, when they come on that show, it really is all of our jobs, including us, to ask the questions of these people. And I invite you to do that every day. And I invite your friends to do it too. Because I think people, I don't know if you came in with one perception about maybe what you thought, maybe you learned some different things, um, even though I've talked to these guys a couple times, I think I learned even more this time than I did before. So I'd invite you to kind of do that again. Thanks for everybody for coming down here because I know we all have lives, right? We've all got stuff to do. So thank you very much. I'd like to, if you would, please give them a round of applause. Yeah.
they know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. 